I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Jeremiah 8. We have studied seven chapters of Jeremiah, of him calling to the people that they would repent of their sin and return unto the Lord. They refused to do so. Last week we spent our time kind of connecting dots uh, with some modern manifestations of the sins for which God was angry at the nation, particularly studying the essence, the elements of the offerings to the Queen of Heaven, the mother-child cult, which has manifested itself in any number of ways throughout history, talking about infant uh, sacrifice and, and um, infanticide as well as it relates to abortion. This naturally, the, the refusal of the nation to repent, naturally puts the follower of Christ in an interesting spot. The same interesting spot, in fact, which we find, in which we find God throughout the biblical record. There's a part of one's heart that is indignant against evil, a part that hates sin, the misuse, the selfishness that dominates those who have rejected the truths of their Creator and have pursued their own sinful pleasures. But there's another part of one's heart as well, given by God, which feels deep compassion and sorrow over such choices. Sin is a deceitful enemy. Sin is a powerful foe. Once that door to sin is opened, it is not always a door that is easy to close again. Once one begins, begins to go down the slippery path, it, it is almost inevitable to find a fall. We've all been touched to some degree by sin in our bodies, illnesses and aches and pains, perhaps choices that we've made. We've all been touched by the sin that is in our world, the choices of others, how they've impacted our own lives. We've understood from many occasions, both in Jeremiah as well as in the revelation of Jesus Christ, that people are not the enemy. That sin is the enemy. Sin and evil, they, they are bitter. The title of our message, The Bitterness of Evil. It's a bitter thing. When we see sin operating in this world, when you see people that are ravaged by sin, when I sit across from people at the, at the jail and I see lives that are torn apart by sin, and not just their own, Sins of parents, of friends, of acquaintances. Went to a memorial service yesterday for my wife's uncle. And uh, he had many health problems, the, uh, many of which were a result of his time in Vietnam. And the ravages of war and how they personally affected him. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And we're going to see this conflict. Conflict which we also studied last week in Revelation when John ate the book and it was sweet in his mouth but bitter in his belly. We're going to see the beginnings of this conflict, maybe not the complete beginnings, but a very early manifestations in Jeremiah of this conflict. We're going to read another chapter of shame and contempt and sin and 
and judgment. And then at the end of this chapter, and uh, just working into the next, we're going to see sorrow. Sorrow in the heart of the prophet. And a desire that his people might repent. We pick up in verses 1 and 2 of Jeremiah 8, and the Bible says this, At that time, saith the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah, and the bones of his princes, and the bones of the priests, and the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves, and they shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven whom they have loved, and whom they have served, and whom they have walked, uh, and uh, after whom, excuse me, they have walked, and whom they have sought, and whom they have worshipped, they shall not be gathered, nor be buried. They shall be for dung upon the face of the earth. We pick up very much within the context of the previous chapter. It has been two weeks since we have gone through the exposition of Jeremiah 7. Uh, two weeks ago we exposited it. Last week uh, we, we effectively applied it. Uh, over the past two weeks, we have studied the shame and the depths of the sin of the people. We finished last week with God saying that he would cause joy and rejoicing mirth to cease in the city of Jerusalem and in the cities of Judea. And that is the context within which we find this statement that, that sorrow will, will take hold, that, that rejoicing will cease in the land. It is within this timetable that God continues in verse 1, at that time. At what time? is verse 1 talking about. At the time when God will cause the rejoicing to cease. At the time when God will cause the joy to depart from the nation. At the time when there will be no more rejoicing in the streets. At the time where there will be no more celebrations among the people. At that time is the time that we're speaking of here. And God says, at that time when all the mirth and joy has ceased out of the land, God says, they will bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the princes and inhabitants and priests and prophets and all the inhabitants out out of their graves, and they will spread the bones of all these people before the sun and the moon, the hosts of heaven that Jeremiah and, and by proxy of the Lord say they have worshipped as their gods and seek for help and blessing. The idea being that they will, put, they will continue to petition for the false gods in this day. They will not repent in that day. And if you recall when we did the survey of Jeremiah... When we did the survey and we walked through the entire book, do you remember what happens after the captivity? There's a group of them that end up down in Egypt. And when they get down in Egypt, they still look at Jeremiah and say, we're still not going to listen to you. We still don't care what you have to say. And we still think that you're wrong, even though everything that Jeremiah had said would come to pass had come to pass. And so this is looking toward that day when they would still be worshiping false gods, even uh, in the face of the evils that God had promised to bring to them. But God says they would not be gathered. They would not be buried. They would not receive any sort of a dignified response by the gods. They would not be gathered unto the Lord. The sun and the moon will not gather them as the Lord gathers his people. We read in the Old Testament of the deaths of the patriarchs and when a patriarch would die, sometimes the scriptures would say, and so and so was gathered unto his people, right? He was gathered unto his people. The idea there being that he went to be with the Lord. He went to be, in that case, Abraham's bosom at that time. He went to be with those of faith of years gone by. God says the, that, that these bodies will be laid out before the sun and the moon, before the gods that they have worshipped, but they won't be gathered. 
They won't be gathered in that day. They won't be buried in that day. Rather, they will just be dung for the face of the earth. They will just lie there. And God had said a similar thing uh, in Jeremiah 7 about them not being buried. And as for those who yet live, we read this in verse 3. And death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of them that remain of this evil family. That would be Israel. Which remain in all the places whither I have driven them, saith the Lord of hosts. God says, among those that remain, among those that are not dead, when all of this judgment comes to pass, you would choose death as opposed to the scattering of the remnant, the misery that you will face among, as a remnant among the nations. A sorrowful end for a people that once claimed the Lord as their protector and as their God. Verses 4 and 5. Moreover, thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Shall they fall and not arise? Shall he turn away and not return? Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit. They refuse to return. So God commands Jeremiah to proclaim something to the people here. God commands Jeremiah to proclaim Shall they fall and not arise? Shall he turn away and not return? The idea here is a question. Does God cast down without restoring? Without being willing to restore? Does God cause a people to... Does he turn away from a people? And is he unwilling then to ever hearken unto them? And the natural answer here is no. Of course not. God is merciful, right? God is merciful. When, when God has turned away His blessings because of the sins of God's people, if we turn back to Him, then He responds. Then He restores. And so the obvious answer to this is no. Obviously, if they turn, He'll return. If they fall, they can arise. To this end, God then asks a question. If this is the case, if this is the God that we serve, if this is the God that Israel served, why then is Jerusalem still sliding backward? <laughs> they know their sin, and they know that God is willing to restore them, so what would possibly compel them to not repent? If God is a God of mercy... If God has promised that He would show mercy upon the land if they would only return to Him, then what would cause them to not turn back? One of the things that we've drawn out of the writings of Jeremiah, and one of the neat things, and Isaiah does this too, is how often Isaiah, Jeremiah, the prophets appeal to simple logic, to reason. If God is who He says He is, and if you are where God says you are, then reason would dictate you change what you're doing and God will change the way he's responding to you. Right? This is just kind of uh, authority 101. If, if reasonable, ra reasonable, rational authority is acting in a negative way toward you because you are acting in a negative way toward him, change the way you act toward him and he will change the way he acts toward you. Right? I said rational and reasonable authority, by the way. Not all authorities are that way. I get it. But that's the idea here, right? One presupposes the truth of God's word. Then if this, this, these things are true, then, then why aren't you repenting, Israel? And the answer is simply because while the nation says that God is God, 
while the nation says that God is true, they don't believe that. They don't believe that what God says is true. Of course, they have all of the false prophets speaking in their ears saying, God has said something different. If they did believe it, then naturally speaking, if they believed that judgment was truly at hand, if they believed that they were truly uh, walking in contradiction to the Word of God, if they had listened and believed it, then it would most certainly have changed their actions. God continues in verses 6 and 7, I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course, as the horse rusheth into battle. Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming, but my people know not the judgment of the Lord. God was patient. He sought them out, but they did not listen. They did not repent. They did not regard their sin. They instead, as he describes it, rushed bullheaded upon the same course of sorrow and judgment as a horse into battle, just beelined it for that for, for their sin, for their judgment. They are heading into it headlong and they say as they do so, what have I done that I should deserve judgment? They don't see it. They've been judged by darkness as we've talked about before. The next set of illustrations appeal to nature in order to speak of kind of the nonsensical nature of Israel's sin here. He appeals to first the stork, the stork in heaven. He says the stork in heaven knows her appointed times, and then the turtle, the crane, and the swallow. Most likely the turtle there is actually the turtle dove, uh, not necessarily a turtle like the amphibian. The turtle, the crane, the swallow, these four different birds. The stork, uh, as it relates to Palestine, would regularly return at a very sudden and regular time from his journeys. Uh, it was a, a very regular thing. The same with these other birds. The turtle dove would return every spring. One of the surest signs in Palestine, in, the, the, in Canaan, in that, that land, I don't mean Palestine like as it's defined today, but in the land, it's one of the most sure signs that spring is at hand. God says these animals, they don't have watches, they don't have calendars. They don't have the capacity to reason. They don't have the ability, as we do, through uh, the image of God and man to identify with the Lord and, and to have the, the, this, this deeper layer of understanding. And yet even these animals know their appointed times. Even they, they understand the signs of seasons, the signs of times. Very similar to what Jesus would say in his day. He says, you can point out storms, right? You can know from the skies whether or not it's going to be good weather or bad weather, but you cannot see my coming. You can't understand it. It's the exact same idea here. The stork knows when to come back. The, the turtle dove knows when to come back. The crane knows when to come back. The swallow observes the times of their coming, but you don't understand. You can't see it. You're blind. The people do not know that the judgment of the Lord is on its way. They can't see the signs. They lack understanding. Verses 8 and 9. How do ye say we are wise? And the law of the Lord is with us. Lo, certainly in vain made, is, made he it. 
The pen of the scribes is in vain. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. So God continues to trace the illogic nature of this nation. He asks, how do you say you're wise? How do you say that the law of the Lord is on your side? This is not just a people that were ignoring God. God says this, and then maybe, maybe not. These are people that say, sorry, Jeremiah, God's on our side of this equation. We're not sinning. We're not, we're, we're not offending the Lord. How could they believe that? Well, we get a picture of this from Jeremiah, from the, the Old Testament prophets. We also get a picture of this from the New Testament, don't we? A people that were so stuck on religious ritual that they thought that was the only thing that God truly cared about. And that as long as they performed the religious rituals of the day, as long as they did their sacrifices, as long as they slew their calves, that that, that was it. That God didn't care about their hearts. That, that God didn't care that their hearts were far from them as long as they did the religious ritual. As long as the Day of Atonement still came around on the 10th day of the ninth month every year, they're good to go. And Jeremiah has sought regularly as well as Isaiah would seek this and many of the prophets would seek to say, no, it doesn't work that way. That's not what God really wants. If you recall that sermon from a few weeks ago, what God really wants is your heart of obedient faithfulness to Him. That's what God really wants. Indeed, there's always been a legacy of those that reject the revelation of the Word of God. These people had worldly wisdom But they knew nothing of that which they needed to know. They had no true wisdom in them, God says. This made the the pen of the scribe vain. The scribes had so much head knowledge of the law. Many of them could probably quote the law. They knew things about the law, but they didn't know the God of the law. They knew things about times and seasons and of traditions and of religions, but they didn't know God. There's always been those that have rejected the revelation of the Word of God. They may be smart people. They may know a lot of things. They may have interesting insights. They may know languages. They may uh, have uh, uh, um, interesting connections. But for all of that, they do not look at the world through the lens of God's Word. And if they do not look at the world through the lens of God's Word, then they will lack the fundamental understanding necessary to see life as it truly exists. Now, beginning in verse 10, we find some very strong repetition of concepts that we studied way back in chapter 6. Verses 10 through 12, the Bible says this, Therefore will I give their wives unto others, and their fields to them that shall inherit them. For every one from the least even unto the greatest is given to covetousness. From the prophet even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall. In the time of their visitation they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. I I would wonder if these verses sound familiar to you. Uh, God tells them that because of their sin, He will give their fields to others, He will give their wives to others. Because even the priests and the prophets deal falsely among the people. He says that they lie to the people, healing them ever so slightly by saying, peace, peace. By saying, no, 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 things are fine. You're fine with God. You're fine, you're fine as it relates to the word of God, when in fact there is no peace. But 
just it being said causes the people, causes some of the guilt to be relieved, right? Uh, it's one of those interesting things, uh, whether it's in the context of a parent and his children, or whether it's in the context of a pastor and his congregation. Uh, when people see someone doing something, they feel like, oh, if they do it, then I can do it too, right? There's this self-justification that says, well, if pastor reads that, if pastor watches that, then it must be okay, well, if pastor says that, well, if pastor goes there, then it must be okay. Well, if mom and dad do that, then it must be okay. Wrong standard. Wrong standard, right? That's not how that works. How that works is the word of God is the standard. And if God says it, I believe it. And if God says it, I do it. And if God says not to do it, then I don't do it. Because God is the standard. And here the idea is that the people began to feel some sort of conviction in their hearts at what Jeremiah was saying. But then they would have these, pro these prophets and these scribes and these priests. And these, these prophets and scribes in peace. When Jeremiah is saying judgment and destruction, they're saying, no, 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 peace. Peace, saith the Lord. And that lessened the conscience, lessened the guilt, healed the people to a slight degree. He recounts that there was no shame in them when they sinned or committed abominations. They didn't even blush. Of course, blushing is a sign of shame that when people feel shame or embarrassment, when they're put in an awkward situation, the face gets red, right? The cheeks flush. That is blushing, and that's an idea of, of embarrassment or shame. Uh, if a, a child gets caught doing something they should not do, and they still have a tender heart about that, then there, there is some shame that they would feel. Uh, even my dog feels shame. She digs the hole. She's not supposed to dig the hole. We come out and say, did you dig the hole? Her tail goes between her legs and her head goes all the way down. And you can tell that she is deeply ashamed. Now, one of the things that really bothers my wife is when my wife comes out and says, did you dig the hole? And my dog looks up at her and her tail is wagging. My wife feels greatly affronted that there is no shame in my dog's eyes or in my dog's actions when my wife confronts my dog about the dog digging the hole. That's the idea here. There is a heightened affront to the fact that Israel is doing these evils. And then when they are confronted by Jeremiah, the prophet of the Lord, about these evils, God says, not only did you do these things and say you're going to continue to do these things, but there was no shame in you at all that you have done them. If this does sound familiar, it's because we read almost these exact same words in Jeremiah 6. In Jeremiah 6, verses 12 through 15, we read this. And their houses shall be turned unto others with their fields and their wives together, for I will stretch out mine hand upon the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. So uh, very, very similar, right? Almost verbatim what we find here in Jeremiah 8, what Jeremiah wrote in chapter 6. couple of thoughts on this. Number one, when God repeats something, it bears our interest. If God is willing to write the same thing twice, in the scriptures, only two chapters apart, it should command our interest. It should perk our ears. 
But we also do understand that there's a, a slightly different context here, right? In Jeremiah 6, Jeremiah is speaking to the nation at large. Then in Jeremiah 7, he begins to speak to the people that are directly at the gate of the temple. So he's saying the same thing to the people at the gate of the temple that he had been saying to the nation at large. The message, however, is the same. The message is consistent. The message has not changed just because Jeremiah's audience has changed. They are a people unashamed of their sin. They are a people who have been lied unto by their prophets and priests. And they're happy with that, right? We talked about that before as well, that they're more than happy to give money to these prophets and priests to be fleeced of these prophets and priests as long as these prophets and priests will tell them what they want to hear. There are people that do not believe judgment will come and what God says in Jeremiah 6, what He says in Jeremiah 8, is that Jeremiah, uh, is that judgment surely is coming. Verse 13, I will surely consume them, saith the Lord. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. God warns that He will surely consume them. No grapes on the vine where there ought to be grapes. No figs on the trees. The leaf will fade. The land will wither. The people will be destroyed. The things that he had given, the land, the blessing, the protection, it's all going to pass away from them. Because if anything will stand forever, it is not man, it is not nations, it is not civilizations, it is not ideas. If anything is going to stand forever, the word of God will stand forever. Now at this point we find a perspective change. Either Jeremiah himself is speaking to the people, including himself, or Jeremiah is elaborating upon what the people should be saying to themselves. There's debate about that in interpretive circles. Verses 14 and 15, we read this. Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter into the defensed cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord our God hath put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because... We have sinned against the Lord. We look for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health, and behold, trouble. I believe Jeremiah is speaking for himself and the people here. I don't believe he's just thinking about what the people ought to say. I think he is actually exhorting them in relation to himself and lauding himself in with his people. And he calls upon the people to gather themselves, to enter into defense cities, and with him to be silent. The idea there is to sit in mourning and in expectation, to quit trying to justify themselves and to just be silent before the Lord. They had sought peace, but no good came. Not because it could not have been theirs, but because they would not have it to be theirs. Verses 16 and 17. The snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones. For they are come and have devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those that dwell therein. For behold, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which will not be charmed, and they shall bite you, saith the Lord. These two verses stand in contrast with the idea of peace and health. So we have that idea of peace and health. And then in contrast, we have this statement where Jeremiah says that what he actually hears, he calls for them to go into their defense cities and to, to be silent. But what he actually hears is the snorting of horses in Dan. 
Recall when we talked about where Dan was located a few weeks ago. It was supposed to be located near Judah, but it was actually in the very northernmost point of Israel, right? That's where the tribe of Dan had settled. So the idea of the horses snorting in Dan is that the, the, this enemy that was coming from the north, right? It would be Babylon. They'd go up the fertile crescent of Mesopotamia, and then I'll, I'll do it from your, your perspective, up toward that, that fertile crescent, and then they'd come down through Syria. And that's how they would get into the land. So when Jeremiah says that the snorting of the horses is heard in Dan, the idea is that the enemy is coming. The enemy is pending. Doom is on its way. He can hear the snorting of the horses. They are coming to devour the land. They are coming to destroy the cities. And then he says, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which will not be charmed. They shall bite you, saith the Lord. Pause for a moment in the narration to talk about this word cockatrice. The creature is spoken of four times in our King James Bible. All translations of the same Hebrew word, sepha. The Hebrew word is actually used five times in the Old Testament text. Four times it's translated cockatrice. Three times in Isaiah, then this one time in Jeremiah. And one time in Proverbs it's translated adder, which is a type of serpent. But a cockatrice from history, if you want to call it that, is not characteristically a type of snake per se. I put up a picture of it, but there's a lot of strange and unique ideas of what a cockatrice was. It's uh, typically understood to be a mythological creature in the same way that a unicorn is considered a mythological creature. Now, we see unicorns in the Bible. We see the cockatrice in the Bible. And in fact, um, the cockatrice was also spoken of by Shakespeare in his day. And, and so it's quite possible that though we regard this as a mythological creature of sorts, it may not have actually been a mythological creature. However, as with any mythological creature, the unicorn, uh, when, when, when we think of a unicorn, of course, there's one thing to think of some sort of animal with a single horn. It's another thing then to think about what the unicorn mythologically has become, right? Whether it has wings or, or whether it has a rainbow tail or whatever it might be, those things aren't what a unicorn was, right? And so it's the same with the cockatrice. It, it, it was something and then mythologically it most likely became something else. And, and that being because um, what they characteristically thought a cockatrice was, was that it was a a serpent that hatched from a the from from a, a a egg of a cock and so a serpent would come out and then the serpent would have unique powers if i can use that word that even just that 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 serpent looking upon you would actually cause people to die it, it, the the essence of of why the king james translators used the word uh, is perhaps somewhat lost to history. The cockatrice was considered some sort of strange mixture between like a weasel and a mongoose and like a serpent and a crocodile eh, sort of thing. But I believe the reason why they used it is because as far as it goes, in the time that the King James translators were translating, the idea of the cockatrice would have been associated deeply with poison. With this poisonous dangerous, extremely deadly creature. And that is the emphasis here. Whether we're talking about an adder, some sort of deeply poisonous serpent, 
that is the idea here, right? Verse 17, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which, which shall not be charmed. The idea, of course, of charming snakes is something that we can still see in, uh, the, in, in the East, in India and such. Um, music and rhythm and the movement of, of, I forget the instrument that they play, it's got some strange name. The movement of that instrument actually causes the snake to kind of focus in on it and to become, uh, uh, it doesn't actually charm or hypnotize the snake, but it, it kind of draws the, the focus of the serpent. Uh, God says you won't be able to do that. There won't be any means by which to avoid the poisonous bite of my judgment. And that's the idea as it relates to the King James and what they're attempting to, what I believe they're attempting to get across there. Verses 18 and 19, as we continue. When I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? Jeremiah speaks of himself, and then we transition back to the Lord. Or perhaps the Lord is speaking the whole time. It's hard to know interpretively. But the idea is this. When he would be comforted against the sorrow that he feels for his people. His heart is faint. Jeremiah, the Lord, whoever it is that's speaking here, looks at the fate of this people, considers the warnings which have been given, considers the confusion in the minds of those who know that Israel is God's people. Consider the people who feel the pangs of guilt and conviction only to hear the scribe or the priest or the false prophet say peace, peace, when there is no peace. And he says his heart is faint within him. Because of the voice of the daughter of his people, perhaps here Jeremiah, thinking toward that day of judgment, as he hears the sound of the horses in Dan, and he plays out, perhaps in some sort of revelatory fo- form, the destruction of the people, and it causes him to be sorrowful and greatly sorrowful at the thought of this terrible judgment. He knows it is a righteous judgment, but it is a terrible judgment. Verses 20 to 22. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. Astonishment hath taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Jeremiah sees the day of judgment getting closer and closer without any repentance from the people. He says, we're past the summer. We're past the harvest. And the people have not come to salvation come to repentance. He sees the hurt of his people, the ravages of sin upon them. He sees the, the, the darkness within which they walk and he hurts for them. He mourns for them. He says, I am black. That idea of mourning. He seeks for soothing ointment in Gilead like a burn cream on a burn. 
something to calm the sorrow and the pain and the sting of judgment. Certainly God can heal, but the people are not healed, not because they can't be healed, but because they won't be healed. And that leads us to the final two verses of our exposition in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Oh, that my head were waters, Jeremiah writes, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they be all adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. Jeremiah wishes two things here. First, he wishes that he, his, his eyes, his head was a fountain, that he might adequately cry the tears that he feels he desires to cry for the slain among his people. Now, what this exactly means, certainly we were reading in chapter 8 within the context of judgment. We might understand it in that way. But, reading in the context of chapter 7, we might also understand this to be the very many slain due to the violence and perversion of the people. Due to the violent murders and evil that was done among the people. Maybe it's both. Maybe there's a, a, a double entendre here. One way or another, he says, I would desire that my head were waters, that, I, that, that my eyes were fountains, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. So he desires to weep for them, but then he also says, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, a lodging place where I could go to get away from these evil people, that I might leave them because they are all adulterers and an assembly of treacherous men. There is an interesting... I read an interesting tension here. Attention among the minister of God, attention among those that have a burden for the lost, attention for those who regard, who would cry out for, who would seek to help those who are wandering from the Lord. And the tension is this, that on the one side there is this deep and abiding love for these people that are wandering from the Lord and a desire that you might cry tears day and night for them, that you might that, that, that if, if, if your heart had any capacity, you would drag them into repentance. I often kind of describe it this way. I wish that as a minister, everyone was just a little sock puppet and I could just stick my hand in there and make them say what they need to say, but I can't do that. All I can, I can cry the tears for my people, but I can't force anyone into action. But simultaneously in Jeremiah, there was this idea that not only does he desire his people to repent and he could wish that he could cry tears for them, but he also just wishes he could get away from their evil. This evil people, he says, they are adulterers. They are an assembly of treacherous men. And oh, that I could just get away. But he can't do that either because he's a minister. We'll see that tension come up a little bit later in the text as well, where he gets so discouraged, he says, I'm not going to say anything any longer until that fire, burning fire shut up in his bones just makes him unrelentingly need to say, to, to proclaim the word of God. This is the beginnings of that. This is the beginnings of that tension. This is the beginnings of him longing for repentance of his people, but also hating who the people are, hating their treachery, hating their evil, hating their wickedness, wanting to just resign them to their fate, but so desperately desiring their salvation. And it's that tension 
that I would like us to dwell upon this evening. And we've, we have come across this in, in various ways, particularly as it relates to Revelation, as we've talked about it. But this is a different series, different group of people perhaps uh, um, hearing it, and maybe not among us, but online and, and such. Three points this evening in our application. And point number one, we must separate from the world spiritually, but we must not separate from the world physically. We've said this in several ways in the past. We often call this in the world, but not of the world, right? Jeremiah wrestles with this common desire among God's faithful to go find a house in the middle of nowhere where people won't bother us because people are the problem, where sinful culture doesn't touch us, where we can just be, where we can just us and God. As a matter of fact, uh, we can read throughout history of the monastic lifestyle, right? Where people would dedicate themselves to the Lord. They'd sell everything that they had and they'd just go live in some monastery somewhere where the world can't touch them anymore and they can just meditate and they can just be. There's a real allure to such a life. Whenever my, my wife and I visit Colorado and we drive up to the mountains, we drive through those, those little towns and those valleys and say, we could, we could be, it would be kind of nice to be here, not a lot of people. Uh, you know, drive down in, in, uh, in, in late October and stock up the freezer until March and then just get snowed in for the winter. We could handle that. But you know what? That's, that's, not, that's not the purpose of the believer, is it? Believers do not live upon this earth to hide. In fact, the believer cannot live out his purpose upon this earth if he secludes himself physically from the world around him. Even more so, a church is failing if it does not reach out to those who are around them in truth and in love. Jesus would say this, Ye are the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14-16. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We are the light of the world. If you hide your light so that it cannot be seen by those in darkness, then what good is your light? What good is it if it's hidden? What function, what, what functional purpose does light serve if that light is hidden in the moment of darkness? Now, there are times where, practically speaking, in this world, we hide our light, not spiritually, I mean physically. I walk into my daughter's rooms, I have a flashlight. I'm covering that light so I don't wake them up. I need to see something. I shine it. I cover it. What functional purpose, however, spiritually speaking, would hiding our light, does hiding our light serve? If we hide our light, the world cannot see our light. If the world cannot see our light, then they cannot see the world as it exists because the world can only see the world as it truly exists as the light of God's word is shined on it. Because that's the only light that there is. They cannot see for themselves what really is because they have no light. Their sin cannot be exposed if there is no light. The very thing this world needs most is invalidated if we hide the light from them. There's a temptation within the workings of our daily lives to hide this light. 
Keep the truths to ourselves because they can be offensive. Keep the truths to ourselves because we don't want to bother others. Or because it's easier just not to have to explain yourselves. You know, have you ever gotten to the point where you had to explain yourself for like the hundredth time why you do what you do and you just say, you know what? I'm just going to let this one go. I don't want to explain myself. I don't want to have to go through the whole thing again and all the questions of, but why? But that's silly. But you, hmm, but why do you do that? Here's the thing. That's why we exist. Like a candle, we exist for one purpose and one purpose only. A candle's not good for anything but one thing. But they look pretty, Pastor. Yeah, but that's not really what they're good for. Candles are good for one thing. They functionally have one purpose, and that is to emit light. And if they're not, if you take a candle and you light it and then you cover it, it is not doing any good. If the light's not shining, then its purpose is not being fulfilled. Thus we are called to let our light shine before men that they may see our good works. That's the light through us. And glorify your Father which is in heaven, who is the true emanator of the light, right? Peter would say it this way in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light. Peter says that it is for this purpose that we are called out. What does it mean that we're a called out assembly? What does it mean that we are the elect of God? What does it mean that we are chosen? Chosen unto what? This is it. To be a peculiar people. To show forth his praises. This is why, as a believer, you exist. This is why you exist. And if we can't do this, then we're not functionally serving our purpose. And to this end, we can't functionally serve our purpose if we're physically separated from the world around us, can we? If we were to cloister up, pack up the church and go move somewhere and start a compound and never leave that compound, we would be functionally failing at the purpose to which God has left us here to accomplish. And the principle as, as it is reflected in the text is perhaps best understood through the preaching of Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul was speaking about judging within the context of the church. 1 Corinthians 5 is about a man who was fornicating with his mother-in-law. A man who claims belief, he's in the church, yet he's living in sin. And Paul says this beginning in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Yet not altogether with fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or a covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves, that wicked person. That would be the one that was within. What we find here is a situation where Paul is commanding the church to judge a man who is within the church, within the authority of the church, because he claims to be a believing man, but he is living in open sin. That's not really what I want to emphasize this evening. What I want to emphasize this evening is that Paul is explicitly saying that the church, that the church should not refuse to company with fornicators of this world. 
And then Paul says, almost matter-of-factly, as if this is not even a controversy, why should you uh, not withhold company from fornicators of this world? Because Paul says, then you'd have to come out of this world. And he says it almost matter-of-factly as if, duh, you have to be in the world to reach the world. And you can't reach the world if you have separated yourself from everybody who's a sinner in the world. They're, they're in the world. Of course they're sinning. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin, right? So they are, yes, they're sinning. Yes, they are fornicators. Yes, they are drunkards. Yes, they are extortioners. They are not the children of God. You can't, if you come out of the world in that sense, then you can't reach the world. And so he was saying, instead, judge those that are within. You come into the assembly, someone's living in open sin, that's the person that you don't company with. That's the person that you don't have fellowship with. So if we carry this principle through, we can establish pretty firmly that we must not separate from the world physically, but we certainly must separate from them spiritually, shouldn't we? Mustn't we? This is the whole point of what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 5, in fact, right? Separate don't separate from the fornicator of this world, but separate yourself from the one who was attempting to bring fornication into the church. Don't separate from the extortioner or the drunkard of this world, but separate from the extortioner or drunkard that says he's one of the brethren. We should not act like the world. We should not be idolaters like the world. We should not be fornicators like the world. We should not be covetors like the world. If we're going to win the world, we cannot do it by assimilating to their evils. We must come out from the world spiritually. We must be distinct from the world in purpose and desire and focus and intention. And this is how we witness to the world. So we already read about being a light to the world, right? This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. We read that already. But what I'd like to do now is I'd like to go back one verse. What did Jesus say, according to the Sermon on the Mount's organization, just prior to calling us a light to the world? Verse 13. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. So whereas verses 14 through 16 deal with us being a light to the world, and so I, I you know, read them first in that sense, before Jesus tells us to be a light to the world, he first told us that we are the salt of the earth. He first told us that we have a savor, that we have a flavor as followers of Jesus Christ. We are different from the unbelieving world around us. And it is, it, it is so. But if we lose that distinction, if we fail to maintain that testimony, if our light looks like darkness, then it's not light. <laughs> then it's not going to shine properly. It's not going to illuminate any sin. It's not going to illuminate the world as it exists. If we're seeking to mimic darkness, we are not functioning in our purpose. If our salt loses its savor, it is good for nothing. Once again, it is purposeless. The very essence of why salt exists in this context, right? We know that salt exists for many other reasons, preserving agent, whatever the case may be. But in this context, the point is flavor. We enter into the world and the world around us should be different because we exist in it. And if it's not, 
then we are thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast down and trodden underfoot of men. And it is only within the context that we are the salt of the earth that then we can be the light of the world. So how are you doing this evening? Are you the salt of the earth? Have you separated from the world spiritually so that you may be among the world physically, in the world but not of the world, that you may reach the world with the distinctions of Jesus Christ? Jeremiah felt this tension, weeping for his people, but wanting to get away from them. This tension should cause us to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of the world. We must guard ourselves from allowing the desire to separate from the world spiritually to cause us to separate from them physically to the extent that we can no longer be a witness to them. Point number two. We must separate from the world spiritually, same point there, but not separate from the world emotionally. I, I give the same balance here. And this is tricky. Jesus tells us that if the world hates us, we know that it hated him first, right? John writes in 1 John, marvel not if the world hates you. So though these people hate us, though they persecute us, though they reject us, we should not separate from them emotionally. In other words, we should not stop loving them. It's hard, isn't it? You open up a newspaper and you read about the next and most recent attack on some Christian baker or on some, uh, some distinction with, within uh, the freedoms of the United States of America that relates particularly to our Christian life that's being attacked, torn down, the next Christian monument, the next Christian distinctive, the things that we hold dear, the desires that we would have to speak and whatnot, and you see these things being torn down, and the desire is to say, this is my enemy, they hate me, I will hate them back. And, and it's, it's difficult, is it not? to assume this tension of wanting to be away from these wicked people but wishing that my eyes were fountains that I may weep for them day and night. Jeremiah was preaching to a people who wanted nothing to do with his message. Later on in the book, they will throw him in the stocks. They'll throw him in a pit. They'll feed him with nothing but bread and water. They will, they will scorn him. They will laugh at him. They will, they will continue to ignore him. And yet, what does he say? He says, I wish I could weep for them day and night. What is in his heart is compassion. He says, for the, for the hurt of the daughter of my people, I hurt too. Jeremiah longed for this people. He loved this people. He wanted to see them saved. Jesus would say it this way. You know it. Back to Matthew 5, 44 to 48. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? 
Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. We often say here at Legacy Baptist Church, and we even mentioned it briefly this evening, the world is not your enemy, it is your mission field. These are the people that you interact with every day. These are the people that are sitting in Washington making policy. These are the people that are deceived by the enemy. They joy in the evils of the enemy. But those people beyond these doors who have rejected the truths of the living God, who disdain God's word, keep a soft heart toward those people. What if a soft heart toward some gruff and angry man means the difference between heaven and hell for him? What if a forgiving spirit among someone who's never seen such a thing means the difference between heaven and hell? What if loving your enemy led someone into the kingdom of God? If you could make it tangible, if you knew If you knew that someone would end up in the kingdom of God because you loved your enemies, it would be worth it, wouldn't it? It would be absolutely worth it. If me turning the other cheek, giving my cloak also, going with them two miles if they compel me to go a mile, if me doing these things, if me praying for my enemies, if me loving them would mean someone entering into the kingdom of God, well, tell you what, sign me up for that. I'll do that. I can handle that. But here's the thing. That is a possibility, isn't it? That that is a possibility. Well, maybe we'll see it. Maybe we won't. There was a point in our studies where Jeremiah was told not even to weep for this people. God says, or excuse me, not even to pray for this people. Don't even pray for this people because they are beyond intercession. And yet, though Jeremiah was called not to pray for this people, he did continue to weep for them. How's your heart this evening? Not toward God, although that's a good question too. How's your heart toward the wayward this evening, toward the rebellious, toward those that have wandered away. Maybe it's a sibling, a relative, a lost cause. You get together with them and they attack you, they scorn you, they mock you, they shame you. You don't want to get together with them. It's always uncomfortable. It's uh, to the point where you don't have very many kind thoughts left for them. Maybe it's that coworker, that boss Maybe it's that boss that fired you because of what you believe. Maybe it's that, that, that co-worker who slanders you before your boss because of what you believe. Maybe it's that person at, that, that slammed a door in your face. Whatever it might be. How is your heart toward them? We need to be separated from the world spiritually, but guard yourself against hardening your heart emotionally. Let it not be that the only way you can cope with the shame, the only way that you can cope with the hatred is by thinking about these people burning. Is by thinking about vengeance. Let it... As you walk this line of tension, let it be 
that we seek above all to reflect the example of our Lord Jesus Christ as He called on us to love our enemies. One final point. I didn't want to leave the message without making a final connect, which I found a personal blessing as I studied this. In verse 13, recall, we read this. I will surely consume them, saith the Lord. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on fig trees. The leaf shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. Here God promises to consume the rebellious so much so that the land itself would be consumed. This is judgment. It's a reminder. It's a reminder that comes full circle in the prophets. As I read this verse, immediately what came to mind is Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. God told the nation their grass would wither, that their flower would fade, and these things have indeed happened. We have seen Israel go into captivity. We've seen them come back. We've seen them destroyed again. We've seen them scattered, just return to the land in the last 60 years, 70 years. We've seen these things take place. But a reminder that through it all, thousands of years of history, what has stood? God's Word has stood. Where all other things faltered and failed, God's Word does not. God's Word cannot. It's where our faith must lie. Habakkuk would say something as well, and this was another one that came to mind Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, and this is what we'll end on this evening. He says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herds in the stalls. That's judgment. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He will make my feet like hinds feet. He will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. May I make one final call to you this evening? Judgment is coming. The world is ravaged by sin. We do not separate from them emotionally. We do not separate them from them physically, but we do separate from, the, from them spiritually. And the confidence that we have to separate them from, from them spiritually and the, the earnestness that we have to maintain these distinctives, to maintain righteousness, to not fall before the wiles of the devil, to maintain these distinctives is in this, that though all of these things will falter, that though this sin-sick world and the judgments of God and the, the evil of sin will cause all of these things to fail. The fig tree does not blossom. There's no fruit on the vines. Nothing is yielding meat. uh, Flocks are cut off from the fold. Yet we, as the righteous, can rejoice in the God of our salvation. God is still faithful. God is still on the throne. So rejoice that God's word shall stand. Rejoice that God is your strength. Rejoice that while some trust in chariots and some in horses, we can Trust in the Lord our God. Rejoice in the Lord and so love the unlovely. Rejoice in the Lord and so trust His way when you don't understand. Rejoice in the Lord and so remain unspotted from the world. 
May we follow the example of Jeremiah. May we be bold. May we tell the truth. May we maintain our compassion. May we as well remain unspotted from the world. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.